trips regularly with us at Kirkpatrick Memorial, uh, maybe particularly if you're here with us on Sunday mornings, uh, you'll find the tone of this gathering quite different than the hustle and bustle and noise, uh, the, the joy that's often there, the celebration. Not tonight. Uh, tonight will, will be different. A chance to reflect on the death of Jesus Christ. Uh, we'll have the choir with us. Uh, they're going to come and sing for us a little bit later on. We look forward to that. We'll retell the story. I've begun the retelling of it. Uh, this year we're going to read some passages from Luke's Gospel. And a little bit later on, I'll take a few moments to, to reflect on what the meaning of all of this uh, might be for us today. We're going to sing together a few times along the way. And our first song uh, serves as a, an invitation almost to ourselves uh, to, to be in this place, to pay attention to what God by his Spirit would say to us. Come and see Come and see. Uh, so let's rise together and sing.
Let's pray. Gracious Father God, we have just sung these words, uh, words of invitation. Lord, we believe that you're the one who extends the invitation here this evening, that you'd have us to come and to see your Son, Jesus. Lord, we come, but... Truth be told, we're uncomfortable as we come. Lord, we don't, don't like a lot of what we're meditating on this evening. The, the gruesome images which your word retells for us, which our minds play before us. The suffering of your son, Jesus. Lord, we're uncomfortable with that. Lord, when we move beyond Jesus' physical suffering and when we think about why it was that he had to die, we're even more uncomfortable because we know that it was for us that he suffered all that he did. Lord, the cross stands before us as a wonderful symbol of your love and a massive indictment of our sinful lives. So, Lord, we come here this evening to this place where wrath and mercy meet, where a guilty world can be washed in love's pure stream. Lord, we come here this evening not really because we want to, because we know that we need to, because this is the place where our healing begins. Lord, we pray that you'd make yourself at home here this evening by your Spirit as we hear your word and reflect on it. Come and visit us in a new way. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just now I'm going to invite Mary to come forward, Mary Sweetlove, and to read uh, the next part in in Luke's Gospel's account, uh, the account of the crucifixion. was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him, and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women and wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. 
For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, who were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Just now, I'll invite David English to come and read for us of the death of Jesus. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. For the sun had stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. We've just uh, reheard the story of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ almost 2,000 years ago by occupying Roman forces outside the walls of Jerusalem. And I want to think with you for just a, a moment about two aspects of Jesus' death. We we want to notice that it was deeply unfair and that it was full of shame. The reality that Jesus' death isn't fair, I I think, is just very evident, uh, particularly in Luke's gospel, uh, the passage which we read this evening. You have the religious leaders, they want Jesus killed, and we see the reason why at the end of chapter 22. It's because Jesus finally agrees in public with their accusation that he is the Christ, uh, that is Israel's uh, long-awaited king. And it's because he agrees with that suggestion that he is the son of God, uh, and that's just outrageous for the Jewish authorities to hear. They're outraged that he makes that kind of a claim. 
that's blasphemy, they say, and they, they need to get rid of him. He has to die. So they take him to Pilate, and they want Pilate to kill Jesus, the, the Roman governor. But they have a problem. The problem is not that Rome has any difficulty with killing. Uh, it doesn't. Uh, they executed people regularly. But the problem is that Rome has rules about who and how the killing would take place. The, the crucifixions weren't indiscriminate. They had a well-developed justice system of which they were proud. So they didn't, for example, crucify muggers or thieves. They didn't crucify blasphemers. And they certainly didn't crucify people who had blasphemed a religion that they didn't believe in anyway. There was absolutely no grounds for Pilate to crucify Jesus Christ. What they did do is they crucified revolutionaries. Anybody who was an enemy of the state, anyone who was a danger to the state, these were the people who suffered crucifixion. And that's why if you pay attention to what Luke tells us in his gospel, the charges against Jesus change in that walk from Caiaphas' house over to, to Pilate's place. They forget about blasphemy being the big deal. They realize it's a big deal for us, but it's not going to fly with a Roman authority. And instead, in verse, uh, chapter 23, verse 1, they approach Pilate and they tell him, we have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and he claims to be Christ the King. He opposes payment of taxes and he's claiming to be a king. Do you know what Jesus said about the payment of taxes? He said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Pay your taxes. Do you know what Jesus said about being a political leader or being a king? He absolutely refused it, even though people went out of their way to, to make him into a leader or a king. It's as clear as day in Luke's gospel that there's nothing on Jesus. There's nothing for which a, a conviction uh, could be sustained. The whole thing is unfair from start to finish. So that's the first thing. Jesus' crucifixion is deeply unfair. But there's a second thing uh, we notice, and that is that it, that it was shameful. In the end, you see, Pilate had Jesus crucified between two rebels. Sometimes in the modern translations, they're referred to as thieves, but that's very, very unlikely that they're being crucified simply for being thieves. The Greek word, lestes, it probably means something more like um, insurrectionists, people who are uh, involved in some sort of violence, some attempt to overthrow the state. They're, they're probably the forerunner of the modern-day terrorist. So Jesus is crucified between two of these characters. And Rome is making a statement, a categorical statement, that for them at least, Jesus of Nazareth is just another failed terrorist. 
He's just another failed insurrectionist. Call him a Jewish Messiah. He's a failure. He's another failed upstart breaking down on the rock that is Rome. And just to make sure everybody got the point, they they put that sign on Jesus' cross, didn't they? This is the king of the Jews. It's, It's full of irony, ridicule, mockery. Yeah, there he is. That's what happens to kings, people who proclaim themselves king in the empire of Rome. The whole exercise was designed to humiliate Jesus and cover him with shame. It's patently unfair. It's full of shame. And we're left asking, why? Why does it have to be like this? Why does Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, go through all of this? And our answer is that he did all this to put an end to sin. In that moment when he hung, dying on the cross, he was like a, a lightning conductor. This time he wasn't, he, he wasn't drawing destructive bolts of lightning and absorbing them. He was absorbing all of the sin, all of the pride, all of the rejection that he was experiencing in that moment. But all of the sin and pride and rejection that he and his Father and the Spirit have experienced from humankind through history past and into the future. He was taking it all on himself. I want you to picture a scene with me for a moment. Uh, a wife, uh, let's call her Carol. Carol's discovered that her husband has been having an affair with a close friend. She's only recently discovered it. If she hadn't stumbled across this by accident, it would still be going on to this day as far as she knows. And the fallout is enormous. The children are devastated. Carol ends up on tranquilizers for the depression that she's going through. Even their, their friendship group is torn apart because people have to decide whether they're, they're going to support Carol or whether they're going to support her husband. She's taken legal advice. She's filed for divorce on the grounds of adultery, and she's, she's planning to get this whole thing behind her so she can start to build some sort of new life for herself and her children. But then it happened. Carol remembered that she loved her husband. She remembered her love for him. And she began to wonder if her marriage could be rescued. There didn't seem to be any sign that her husband would ever come back to her of his own accord. No sign that he was going to ask for forgiveness anytime soon. And as she thought of the prospect of reaching out to him, most of what was inside her recoiled. Why should I make all the effort? I'm the innocent party in all this. 
I never wanted this relationship to end. Why would I have to go crawling back to my husband? It'd be so unfair and so shameful. With the divorce settlement agreed, with the decree Nisai about to become final, Carol decided that she wanted to make one last attempt to rescue her marriage. And in an act of love greater than any that she'd ever shown before, she wrote to her husband. She explained that she didn't blame him for the divorce. She explained that she was willing to forgive all the the pain, all the hurt that she had suffered if he could find it in his heart to give their marriage another chance. Think about this with me for one moment. If Carol sticks to her guns, if she goes ahead and finalizes the the divorce proceedings, then despite the fact that she's entirely justified to do that, she really is, she'll never have that restored, healed, strong, honest, fulfilling marriage. For that to happen, Carol has to absorb all the pain and the suffering caused by her husband's betrayal because she loves him. Maybe an image like that helps us to get to the heart of what's happening on the cross of Jesus Christ. In that moment, as he dies, he absorbs all the pain, all the suffering caused by our sin against God. He endures the injustice and the shame. And in doing it, he demonstrates the lengths that God, our Father, his Son, and the Holy Spirit will go to draw us back to him. One contemporary writer reflecting on the reality of evil, he says this, there are dozens of ways to deal with evil and several ways to conquer it. All of them are facets of the truth that the ultimate way to conquer evil is to let it be smothered within a willing, living human being. When it's absorbed there, like blood in a sponge or a spear into the person's heart, it loses its power and goes no further. He goes on, the healing of evil can be accomplished only by the loving, willing sacrifice of an individual. That's what happens on the cross of Jesus Christ. A loving, willing sacrifice. The moment when God is the one who makes that sacrifice. Let me close for this evening. We've already noticed the words of one of the two criminals crucified beside Jesus. He recognizes Jesus for the king that he was. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I want to finish 
by inviting you to notice what the other criminal said. Verse 39. He's insulting Jesus. He mocks him. He says, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. What a challenge and what a temptation for Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Jesus knew how to save people. He'd been doing it for years in his public ministry. If he met a hungry crowd, he fed them. If he met a person sick, he healed them. When he met somebody possessed of demons, he cast them out. If he, if he came across a grave, he, he invited the person to leave it. Jesus Christ knows how to save in all the ways that we would ever need to be saved. Could he not do it now, in this moment? Could he not save himself and these two criminals from the cross? Thank God Jesus didn't do what this man asked. You see, Jesus knows something that this man doesn't know. He knows that in that instant, he can choose to do one or the other. He can save us or he can save himself, but he can't do both. And he chooses to save us at the cost of his life. He chooses to endure all that's unfair and all that's shameful about the crucifixion to carry our sin so that one day there might be an end to it. That we might be washed clean and made new. And all of this he does because he loves us And he wants us back. That's what we're remembering here today. And that's why we call this day good. Let's pray. Father God, as we've reflected even for a few moments on the, the death of your dear Son, we see human evil writ large. The way in which Jesus was crucified, so unjust, it had to be. No just court could ever condemn your perfect and pure Son. Lord, even in that moment, human pride was to the fore as they, they ridiculed Jesus, as they exposed him to shame. Lord, all of this reflects badly back on us. Lord, 
the truth is, when you came into this world, we treated you terribly. You suffered at our hands a great deal, finally to the giving of your life. But Lord, we thank you that this was always what you'd intended. Always, your love for us was stronger than our sin against you. No crime that we could commit against you could outweigh your grace and your kindness and your mercy. So Lord, we thank you. Jesus, we thank you that you took it, that you absorbed it all, and that you did it to bring us back. Let's sing together, Oh, to see the dawn, and we'll stand as we do that.
Maybe you'd take your seat um, just for a moment. Um, I want to thank the choir uh, for leading us uh, this evening. Uh, Thank you to Monty and Gwen for leading them. Um, Thank you to Mary and to David for reading. Uh, David told me he didn't think of himself as a public reader. Thank you for leading us. So this has been a different kind of a service. Um, And because it's been different, uh, we think it it maybe could end in a different kind of a way. Kirkpatrick's services normally end with chaos as our children pile back in from where they've been. And then we hang around for at least an hour of uh, vibrant chat and catching up. But not, not this evening. We won't have our usual time of tea and coffee. I'm not going to go to greet people at the door. Instead, we're going to end with uh, one last reading and then with a, a short prayer. And after the closing prayer, we're going to have a time of of silent reflection and prayer. You are, of course, free to go if you must. Um, if, if you need to slip on, please do that. Otherwise, you're welcome to stay on for a few moments. There will be some gentle music playing. Um, if you must go or if you want to catch up with each other, just slip out gently and have those conversations outside. But we're leaving a little bit of time and space here for a quiet reflection uh, for those who wish to. Just now I'm going to invite uh, Patrick Ebbinghouse to come up and read our final reading, um, which speaks of the burial of Jesus. Jesus' burial. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He had come from Judea, a town in the town of Arimathea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The woman who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. Thanks, Patrick. Shall we pray? Gracious Father God, we bring our time together this evening to a close. Lord, some of us know how this story ends. 
And we know that this is not the end. Lord, we do look forward to gathering again on Sunday, to having another chapter of the story to tell, one that brings us a great deal of joy and of hope. But Lord, we don't want to skim over this chapter too quickly. So we thank you for this time and this place. And we pray that you would continue to be with us and speak to us, to impress on us the the glory of what you did for us in Jesus Christ. Be with us. This evening we pray. Amen.